Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have two students with me here today. Uh, let's do some introductions. Let's start with you, Jonathan, since you're uh, the star of the show, so to speak. My name is Jonathan Kaiser. I'm a PA student. Uh, this is my fourth rotation. I'm set to graduate in August. One of the things I don't know a lot about, so I've had a handful of PA students come through. How do you get into PA school? Uh, PA school is uh, varies from school to school. Um, for mine in particular, you had to have a certain amount of clinical hours. Um, it can range anywhere from 500 to 2,000 hours um, and a certain GPA. And so, I, but most applicants have about 2,000, 3,000 hours before going in. Of clinical experience. And, and what do they have that clinical experience in generally? It depends. So mine was uh, very between psych tech, so working here, uh, medical assistant and family practice, and um, pain management and a dermatology. Um, I did those over the course of four to five years. Mm-hmm. Um, so You're at Rocky Mountain University. Yes. Different than Rocky Vista University. You're located in Provo. Correct. What kind of GPA does somebody need to have to be competitive at Rocky Mountain University? Um, I've talked with other students, typically around 3, 4, or 3, 5, um, with around you know 1,000, 2,000 hours is considered competitive, but it really depends on the type of patient care experience, uh, not just hours, but the quality of experience. You are hoping to end up in dermatology. Correct. Mm -hmm. Tell me uh, a little bit about how you came to that decision to go into dermatology. Um, Well, I was a derm patient myself growing up when I was a teenager. I had really bad acne and liked picking it. (laughs) And so this kind of little segue into into, uh, our topic today. But but I, I really liked the patient's. I love the procedures, um, and working with my hands, and um, just overall, it was just a really great experience. Uh, and also had some background in immunology and microbiology, which is my kind of background in my undergrad. So, interesting. Well, very very cool. And uh, do you want to introduce the topic? Even though uh, we will have Elliot reintroduce himself in just a moment. Yeah. So we'll be going over excoriation disorder. Um, so this is one that has been recently added to the DSM-5, so. Well, very exciting. Elliot, you've been here before. You kind of know this gig. Yeah, I've been on a couple podcasts, um, back in 2021. Um, so happy to be back. My name's Elliot. I'm now a fourth year, uh, student at Rocky Vista and, um, just doing a, just I guess I'm at the end of my four weeks uh, here at the Utah State Hospital for a second time. We will miss you. I enjoy being here, so I will miss it. You are going to match into surgery. Mm -hmm. You have a couple of places that you've interviewed already. Mm -hmm. Really, it's just a waiting game now. Yep. Yeah. So finished interviews middle of January, and now... um, I have to submit my rank list by March 1st and then matches on the 17th. Has your wife let you know where you will be 
rinking, how that will work out? Or No, she hasn't been that helpful. She said, we don't care where you go. Pick it based on the program and we'll make it work. So, Wow. That guidance, I mean, I appreciate that she is so open to going anywhere, but no it makes, uh, <laughs> makes my life harder. It's hard to choose, isn't it? It is. For what it's worth... I don't think I've any really ever talked to anybody that said, oh, I ended up in the wrong place. And I think it's sort of like that study where they gave people toasters and blenders and then had them come back like three months later and ask them, did you get the right toast? Did you get the right appliance? I don't know that there's a difference between a toaster and a blender, but my understanding is, and this is all what I've been told, is that uh, no matter what you chose, you're happy with it. And I, I think it's the same with residencies. So we wish you luck and uh, I've really enjoyed having you here. And ultimately, general surgery. Um, we will see. As of right now, I don't know exactly what I want to do. I like the bread and butter general stuff. Um, but I was able to do a lot of cardiothoracic stuff on some of my away rotations, and I really enjoyed that. So pretty I cool might stuff. fellowship in cardiothoracics. Very, very interesting. Well, great to have both of you here today. Let's talk a little bit about excoriation disorder. And at the top of this, we have, for those of you that have been through this before, we've sort of evolved to where we have an outline that we work with mostly. Uh, and at the top of this outline, I put misregulation of innate grooming. So we all groom on some level. We all have a tendency to scratch at something, maybe pull a hair out that doesn't feel right. Um, who knows, maybe even those ear hairs that I'm getting as I age, right? That's <laughs> grooming probably not pathological, right? Maybe that's logical grooming. And so we want to talk about the misregulation of innate grooming. And, and Jonathan, you mentioned that this is a new diagnosis in the DSM. Correct, it yeah. sits inside the OCD-related disorders, and that's going to have some meaning, I think, as we go through this. Yeah. Why don't you introduce us to pathological grooming? Yeah, pathological grooming uh, varies from normal grooming, and that I'll just go over the diagnostic criteria. DSM-5 outlines it as one, recurrent skin picking resulting in skin lesions, two, repeated attempts to decrease or stop skin picking, three, the skin picking causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of uh, functioning, Four, the skin picking is not attributable to the physiological effect of a substance or another medical condition. And lastly, it's not better explained by symptoms of another mental disorder. Especially OCD, I think, or body dysmorphic disorder. And we're going to get into that a little yeah. bit more, I think. Now, how common is this? You were in a, in a clinic. Mm -hmm. How often did you see this? I haven't seen it. Um, I've seen people that have picked um, with acne, but pathologically, they've done it to the point that is distressing. Uh, maybe one patient, you know, mm -hmm. maybe two patients. So very, very infrequent. But were you recognizing the patients that had the problem? I mean, would you have been able to pick them up in in the clinic? I think at the time. If I had known about excoriation disorder at the time, maybe. I think I'd be able to point out some of the lesions that I think it talked about in the literature about different healing processes, some that, that are healing crusts as opposed that are um, new wounds. So had I been able to 
to examine that as a medical assistant, I think I'd be able to pull it out, but I would be better now after okay. this experience. How common is this? Um, studies show, and DSM-5 states between 2.1% to 3.1%. Um, I've seen other studies that say up to 5.4%, so not not as prevalent in the general population. Um, is more prevalent, prevalent in females, 8 to 1 ratio, females to males, so um, much more prevalent in females. Some of the stuff you put together said that about 2% of people that show up to dermatology clinics have this uh, excoriation disorder, but you didn't see it. Maybe seen one or two. Okay. Yeah. I want to change gears just a little bit. I want to I, I want to make sure that we point out um, one of the comments in some of our prep work said that about 60% of people have some form of picking behavior, right? But I, I want to make sure that we talk about the severity of skin picking disorder. So we had an article, the American Journal of Psychiatry, the Green Journal as we sometimes call it, had an article that uh, back in 2012 introduced the idea of skin picking disorder being in the DSM-5. They made it clear that this isn't people pulling a hair out, picking at things. This is people who can spend hours picking that they would be late for work, that the amount of time spent on the picking behavior is so onerous that it is very disruptive in life. So you mentioned having some tendency to uh, go after some of the agony of adolescence. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you're implying that you spent hours doing this, that it got in the way of you being at work. I think you're talking more about this tendency to groom that may have led to increased risk of scarring, those kinds Correct. of things. Mm -hmm. okay. so, so we're talking about something that is very, very chronic, tends maybe to wax and wane with stress. And uh, are there, I think the next thing we wanted to do was, uh, Elliot, you have access to some of the board prep or shelf prep work. Were there even any questions showing up yet on the shelf exam? Um, not like on picking. I think most of the questions that you're going to see on a shelf exam are going to kind of center around OCD um, and what that treatment is. Um, some of the questions you're also going to have are going to be in the anxiety realm, kind of differentiating anxiety, but nothing on true um, like maladaptive grooming habits that I could see. Um, I think the big things to kind of be aware of on a test question are, um, you know, what if you have a patient and you're diagnosing them as having true OCD, just being aware of what the first line um, treatment is for OCD, and that's going to be an SSRI like fluoxetine or um, sertraline. Um, and we're going to talk about, you know, later on what treatment for um, excoriation disorder is because it's different than OCD, and I think that that is one of the reasons or one of the factors that the DSM-5 um, has it as its own disorder versus the DSM-4 that just kind of put it under OCD, like as a symptom of OCD possibly, or but it wasn't its own true condition. Um, the other thing I would just kind of be aware of um, as far as like questions are if you're going to get questions on like a tick disorder versus Tourette's and just kind of knowing um, that a tick is a sudden you know, rapid, repetitive, stereotypical movement or vocalization 
Whereas for a patient to have Tourette's, they have to have both a motor tick and a vocal tick, and the duration of time has to be a year. So those were kind of the two um, types of questions that you'll see. You won't really see anything on excoriation disorder, but just being aware of the OCD um, and then the tick and Tourette's, I think, will be beneficial. It seems like it might be important. Well, I'll go back to one of the comments we made, and that is essentially the diagnosis of excoriation disorder is the last possible diagnosis if you haven't ruled out everything else. And I think it's interesting, uh, I assume you put this in our, in our notes, Jonathan, that um, the first step would be checking for something like atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, scabies, blistering, skin disorders, use biopsy, uh, look at microscopy, Woods lab to rule out fungal uh, infections, patch testing for allergies and lab results, and so forth. But I also think it's very important to ask the question, why do you pick, right? And I think one of the key distinctions is that if somebody is uh, having uh, pathological grooming behaviors, or, or in this case more specifically, excoriation disorder, it's not clear that it's related to itching. Um, it's not clear that it's related to uh, pain, heat. It's probably, it, it shouldn't be related to something doesn't look right with my body, so I'm trying to fix it. It's just this tendency to do it. Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the difference between that and OCD then. How would we tell the difference between excoriation disorder which is in the obsessive compulsive disorder uh, section of the DSM, and um, and uh, I don't remember which I said ED and OCD. How would you tell the difference between the two, even though they're in the same section? So who has that? So skin picking, differentiating that between OCD. What they do have in common is that they do have both the presence of obsessions and compulsions. Um, obsessions being defined as kind of the recurrent, persistent thoughts. Um, I, I feel like I have to need to bite my, you know, or pick at, uh, my skin, um, and compulsions are just those repetitive behaviors that drive someone to reduce, okay, this will make me feel better. This will re reduce my stress. Um, it Can is I jump in. Mm -hmm. Cause I think you said they both have obsessive obsessions and compulsions, but I think from what I understood, at least. And Dr. Roundy, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, skin picking, it's not a compulsion. Like, they're not getting anxiety relief necessarily from that's the that, part that's, or are they getting the anxiety relief of a true compulsion? I, I don't... See, that's, that's where I think this comes in. If you look at the one and the two criteria on the skin picking from the DSM-5, it doesn't say what drives the behavior necessarily. Mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe the difference between this and OCD and that OCD has, um, th there's a driver somewhere in OCD to pick. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why there's a lot of overlap between the two conditions. So if you look at uh, some of the literature that we read, for example, the, the introductory article in the American Journal of Psychiatry, I think it's making the case that there's a tremendous amount of overlap between picking and OCD, but there are times when picking doesn't seem to fall into that category. Mm -hmm. And so that would be the carve-out. And it could be, it, it, it's difficult for me to say if it's something like 
this OCD behavior only, right? Because it's not clear to me that there's not some driver that is OCD-like, mm-hmm. but only in this area, mm-hmm. right? But I think anytime you have anything more than picking, then you move into the OCD dis- disorder category. And OCD might have multiple uh, kinds of symptoms that, that would be on board. And I don't think if you've diagnosed OCD that you could diagnose uh, skin picking or excoriation disorder, I should say. So that's the way I see it. But then again, Jonathan, you read through the DSM, I think 40, 50 times, making sure that you felt comfortable with this. Um, how did you, what was your take on that? I think what it's what you just mentioned is that you know the skin picking causes clinically significant distress or impairment, um, so it encroaches on these different aspects of their life. So you make a good uh, statement there where you know OCD does um, have some of those aspects of the compulsions and obsessions, and so yeah, I do think they're. Uh, so you have some crossover. But. So just to be clear, I don't think that you have to have some sort of thought that drives you to pick. Right. Interestingly, though, I, I tend to think, and, and this is where I, I lose my certainty very quickly, I tend to think that with something like trichotillomania, it's almost like an impulse control disorder where you have this growing sense that you need to adjust something, right? Pull a hair that doesn't feel right, isn't in place. And in fact, we saw the, the name dermatotillomania used also. So I, I'm, I'm under the impression that it's maybe more like something doesn't feel right rather than if I pick at this, then I'm undoing something, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, so I think that's a very subtle distinction, but that's the best I can understand it at the moment. Maybe I'll understand it better with more reading. Yeah, trichotillomania in the DSM five, honestly, just replace the part where it says skin picking and say hair pulling, and I, the rest of it um, is mirrored and through two through five in the diagnostic criteria. So very similar. And I think we're going to see some overlap, not necessarily as much with OCD, and I think uh, Elliot will talk about this in a few minutes, but I think we'll see some overlap between trichotillomania and dermatotillomania or excretion disorder as we go further along. Um, How would we then separate between body dysmorphic disorder? And I think I want to try this one, and you guys correct me if I miss this one. I think this is a lot easier than OCD. In my mind, with body dysmorphic disorder, you're picking to try and address a perceived defect or flaw in appearance that wouldn't be observable to, to anybody else. I feel like that one's a little easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, um, the AJP article, the American Journal of Psychiatry article, with regards to OCD, also mentioned that there are some differences in, in how often you might see these in men versus women. So I, I don't think that helps you with the individual diagnosis as much, right? So mm-hmm. right, about 18, eight times more likely to be present in women, this uh, this trichotillomania, or not, I'm sorry, the excoriation disorder. And also they make a comment, and I don't know what to make of this, skin picking is more often in female and with poor motor inhibition, where OCD is more likely to include cognitive inflexibility. And I think that might be difficult if you're a psychiatrist sitting in a clinical setting, figuring that out. Now you might see the clinical inflexibility a little more easily, but I'm not sure what they meant by poor motor inhibition. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not sure either. I think, you know, the one interesting thing that I saw in some of the reading was, you know, they mentioned that people 
that had excoriation disorder, they were more likely to have like a comorbid condition or predisposed to having a comorbid condition. And like some of those articles would list OCD as a comorbid condition or ADD um, or major depressive disorder. So, I mean, those other two outside of OCD, like that makes sense. But then we're saying it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Yet. I think those might have been written before the DSM-5 yeah. came out or were in the press probably. So I think that was part of the explanation for that. I, I want to look at three more differential diagnoses very quickly. Uh, I like this, dermatitis artifacta. Yeah, that was an interesting one. I was like, I can't remember that. But then when it said factitious dermatitis. So it's psychogenic picking um, associated with the etiology just to create attention, to create and assume a sick role for uh, the provider, so I thought that was an interesting one. I'm going to change that just a little bit. I don't know that it's to create attention because this is um, factitious, and I think factitious is now called functional, right? Functional, uh, we better pull out the DSM yeah. for this one. It's right over here, um, but I think that that functional, we'll stick that in, in Elliot's hands because I think you and I are going to be talking next. A little bit more. And then the next one is delusional manifestations of this. So, uh, delusional infestations. Yeah. Yeah. So, that is interesting because we, I think we've seen that with some, at least I've talked with some of the patients on the floor that said, uh, when I was, you know, taking amphetamines or a stimulant, I had this, you know, the feeling of the creepy crawlies where I was infested with parasites and I couldn't stop picking that out of my skin. So, interesting. That's interesting because I'm not sure we've ever picked up on that with our patients. The only place I've ever seen this overtly was um, with some patients I saw distantly who were truck driving, uh, cross country or long haul driving, mm. and had been using stimulants that appeared. And, and this seems to be correlated with stimulant use. And they actually had a foley or a shared delusion of uh, parasitosis. So, um, delusional construct, you might see some of this. Another one, malingering uh, for compensation, right? Which is where I wanted to make sure we made the distinction between a factitious disorder, which isn't feigned mm-hmm. or done for any overt gain, right? Right. Yeah, assuming the sick role versus a malingering, you're actually self-harming with the result of a reward. I'm not sure how that would play out with picking skin, but... Yeah, maybe uh, maybe you'd see it in the military. Maybe you would say, I, I have an infestation in my cell. I need to be moved to a different uh, cell block that is less restrictive. You might see it, I suppose, in those kinds of settings. Uh, so what is the clinical presentation? How, do, how would you see this happen? Yeah, so painting a picture of a patient, um, I imagine, you know, since the onset would be an adolescence, this is someone who is, you know, starting in puberty, uh, very stress and stressed and anxious person, maybe has some acne or eczema associated, associated. Um, sedentary lifestyle, boredom, kind of sitting down, watching your TV, um, or TikTok on your phone, and then constantly, you know, just picking at on something on their face, and then it becomes constant. Um, there is an interesting. Um, study here that said there's a second onset which I didn't know about about that with excoriations in the 30s so 
Yeah, I, re I read that. It looked like in the AJP article it talked about kind of two peaks, hmm. one in the late middle teens and then one in the, the later 30s. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go back now. Uh, I was terribly wrong, not just a little wrong, terribly wrong. Uh, Elliot's over there chuckling. So factitious disorder, falsification of physical or psychological signs or symptoms or induction of injury or disease associated with deception, and that is to take on the sick role as opposed to uh, functional or neurologic symptom disorder or a conversion uh, disorder where there's this incompatibility between the symptoms and the neurological or medical condition and um, not, not a feigned or a taken on role, right? So again, mm -hmm. factitious and malingering would both be feigned. Mm -hmm. um, one is to take on the sick role, as you said. The other one would be um, simply for reward. Mm -hmm. Some sort of gain, usually in a legal setting. Thank you yes. for helping me prove myself so terribly wrong. <laughs> Excellent. So um, you had mentioned earlier uh, the difference between the kinds of injuries that you might see on the skin. I think injury is a reasonable word for this, mm -hmm. or, or manifestation. Talk yeah. about those just a little bit if, if if I didn't miss those while I was glancing at how wrong I was with factitious disorder. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the main important uh, aspects to look at uh, in a presentation of the patient with excoriation disorder are looking at very various stages of healing and wounds. Um, so one of the studies we looked at is that they were able to see what's called angular excoriation, so the, the angle at which you know the nail or the way that is picked at with the serosanguineous crust, so a mix of the blood and um, and then with older lesions, maybe crusted over uh, with hypertrophic nodules, so with kind of hyperkeratosis that will pop up and cause these scars, or with atrophic scars that kind of leave an indent. Um, inside the face, for example. So you can get both like a like a bump, right, or a indentation. Correct. What, what? Any idea what makes the difference in that? Is it just the difference of how somebody scars? Um, possibly, and probably the location as well. Um, Elliot, you're shaking your head rapidly. I think it just has to do with like how people heal. Um, you know, if you think of. People that have a surgical incision, for example, um, or like Dr. Rowney said, like a keloid, like it just depends on how, um, you know, you reform that tissue um, layer over that um, indent or incision that was made in your skin. Hypertrophic, hyperpigmentation, hypopigmentation, all are possible then? Is that what I'm understanding? Yes, and those are scars associated with acne. So you'll be seeing either recent areas where they did pick at or kind of with the hypopigmentation with over time, it's still healing, kind of, uh, how do you say, violaceous color, purple. Um, but the most common areas that they said in order started from face to hands, fingers, arms and then legs and I think that might be associated with um, with acne where that's most present at so I, I'm curious to know about that maybe that's because of acne um, it's certainly on your mind yeah <laughs> where the yeah eczema presents um, scabies I think you're making the case that 
perhaps picking disorder has an environmental factor as well as a genetic factor, and that perhaps some sort of other um, primary skin condition may be a nidus or a starting point for people who become pathologically grooming at some yeah, point. that's possible. Okay. I, I don't know that we found a lot of data that supports that, but there was one mm-hmm. interesting study. So we, let's, let's go ahead and jump into the pathophysiology of this. Um, there was one study that was mentioned in one of the articles I read, and I didn't find it again. Uh, there were over 2,000 twins that were mentioned, I think, in the AJP article. And it, it, it mentioned concordance, but I don't think it said what the concordance actually was. I think it said something about 1% had something, but I don't think it actually said concordance. So if one of you found a number, I would be very fascinated to hear that. No, I, okay. I did not. I didn't find the yeah, number. So We might have to go back and look for that at some mm-hmm. point because I am kind of curious. So let's, let's talk a little bit about why we think this happens. Now, Elliot, you've, I think you've done the deepest dive on this. So I, I, if it's okay with you, take the ball and run, and <laughs> I will jump in with color. Both, I think both Jonathan and I will jump in with color, ask questions. Um, but this is fascinating. Yeah. The, this was um, what some people called the rabbit hole. Yeah. two years ago. That seemed to be a place that a lot of students went. We haven't used that language as much over the last eight months, but it's great language. You went into the rabbit hole. Yeah, um, I did. So, you know, there was a couple of different studies, and I think, you know, Dr. Roundy, you joined me in the rabbit hole um, a little bit hole. as far <laughs> as, uh, you know, looking at what we think is maybe the mechanism behind um, this maladaptive um, grooming behavior. The first study that we looked at, um, it was using mice as um, the model because they're easy. Mice are an easy model to um, look at and see kind of what their grooming patterns are. I think one of the articles said they groom um, kind of like we do, I guess, from a caudal or from a um, cephalad to caudal. Um, direction with the anus obviously being the last thing that's cleaned and so it's easy to tell kind of when there's disruption in their grooming patterns Um, and so this one study that we looked at it was looking at the Hox B8 um, gene and so they knocked out this gene and some of the mice and they found that the mice that had this gene knocked out they became they developed maladaptive grooming I think it was like a four months is when that first showed up Um, and they would groom to the point that during the evening hours when they should be asleep they would still be awake um, grooming themselves and they would groom um, and create you know open lesions Um, they'd have loss of hair and this didn't matter if they were in a cage by themselves in a cage with another mouse that had a, had the Hawks B8 knockout or in a mouse that was the control um, didn't have that gene knocked out. And the reason that I thought that that was interesting was as far as looking at the mice and having them in a setting by themselves with you know a mouse that had the knockout and then with another um, mouse that was the control was they wanted to rule out that this was allopathic grooming because I think there was one set, I don't know if we all looked at it, but there was one study I can't remember what they changed in the mice, but they had more allopathic grooming, where if they had another mouse in the cell, they wouldn't just groom themselves, they'd also groom that mouse. And that's not what excoriation disorder is. It's just a self-inflicted maladaptive grooming behavior. Let me make sure I understood this. 
I, I was tracking that they had mice. I, I, I was under the impression they were also trying to rule out that this was an environmentally contagious behavior. Yeah. But what you're also talking about is that there were mice that would groom other mice, and they were trying to make sure that that wasn't this. Yeah, exactly. There was another study, and I, it wasn't, I can't remember exactly which, which thing they knocked out, but in that study, the mouse would develop, it was allopathic grooming behaviors is what would happen, where they would, if they had a, you know, cellmate, they would also groom the cellmate as well as themselves. So they would uh, pick the hair mm-hmm. and scratch themselves and the and the pure mouse. Yep. Okay. All right. A couple of questions, a couple of comments here. First of all, uh, this was done in Mario Capecchi's lab, Dr. Capecchi, who is our University of Utah Nobel Prize uh, laureate, which is pretty cool. Uh, being a uh, graduate of the school twice. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, very, very interesting because there was a lot of language in this that I didn't understand. So when I um, was at the University of Utah for my undergraduate work, developmental biology was Hawks genes, right? This was the area that was being explored and it seemed to be Hawks is development, right? Homeobox. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I recall there being all of the different Hawks genes at that point. I think... uh, I think there were a handful of genes that might have had other names. Sonic might have been one, or Hedgehog, or both. Um, those names still might be around. They may or may not be Hawks genes, but I remember that vaguely. What I didn't know about, and still have a very limited understanding, is it appears that Hawks genes may have activity both during development and that there might be some continued activity afterwards. That Hawks genes may actually be involved in... Um, continued health of microglia, at least with this Hox B8 gene. Mm-hmm. And so um, this story continues with a rescue study. And it took me a while to figure out that it was a rescue study because I didn't understand IRES, which apparently you can buy molecules online. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're set up in sort of a stepwise fashion and you can recruit partial pathways depending on how you use the Hox genes that are attached to um, internal ribosome entry site linkers of some sort. And I I know I'm not using the right language there, but it's the best way I know how to describe it. So now now that we've talked about knockout genes um, and this model of knockout genes, I, I will just add that there appear to be two important pathways that are knocked out. The first is... Um, this this pathway that involves the bone marrow, mm-hmm. and the second is a pathway that involves spinal neurons. The the bone marrow seem to be related to microglia, and and so even though I've talked about microglia being maintained, it appears to be through a bone marrow pathway. So we have these two different divergent pathways. One is bone marrow, one is spinal neurons, and I'm going to have you pick up the story from there, if you will. Yeah. Um... And so the way that I kind of understood it was because the way that the Hawks um, genes affect like organization um, in development with knocking out the Hawks B8 gene, it left a um, spinal deformity in these mice that had that knocked out. And so one of the things that they wanted to look at and that they showed was even, um, let me rephrase that, is it that the in the study itself, they took into account that maybe this spinal 
um, malformation was the cause of the maladaptive grooming, or people could think that. And so they showed um, that the spinal deformity wasn't actually involved in, um, in the pathological um, or maladaptive grooming behavior. I, I, and I want to comment on that, too, because this is the obvious answer, right? Mm -hmm. the, these are neurons that are involved in sensation. Yeah, it was sensation and, like, thermal regulation. And so, obviously, if you, you know, I kind of thought about it. If you've ever had your leg, you know, go to sleep or, um, you know, you've had a nerve injury where you end up with, um, you know, some paresthesias or numbness, like, that can be a very distracting um, an uncomfortable sensation um, and nerve pain I think is one of those things too depending on what you're feeling um, it's really annoying and so that could draw you know it could have been drawing these um, mice's attention essentially and that could have been why they were itching or scratching but they were able to show that that um, wasn't a confounding variable in this study and that um, this was actually all related to um, like the they think a hematogenous source um, which happens to do with the bone marrow and then um, the microglia and kind of the formation of the blood-brain barrier is kind of what I understood so the Hox B8 and the bone marrow those kind of help form um, the blood-brain barrier as we develop and then the microglia are if you think about them in the CNS those are your cells that um, deal with and are recruited to um, like inflammation in the brain, essentially. You think of them as like a macrophage in the peripheral um, blood. And I think what's really, really interesting about this is that, um, you know, th th there's always this idea, I mean, the, the science fiction idea that you, you become a different person with a transplant, right? There are stories about, I mean, like, just stuff that you think, this is ludicrous. Mm -hmm. And yet, you can have a bone marrow transplant that... Uh, notably changes a very overt um, CNS behavior. And I, that kind of blew my mind. I was, I was ready to write a fictional book um, <laughs> that had some sliver of truth at it at that point. Right? Right. The other thing that's fascinating, there, there was another article. So, so I, I maybe just add one more comment, and that is that they were able to put together a molecule that included the um, Hox genes ability to recruit ribosomes using ribosomal pro protein R38. This is the IRES component of this molecule that they used in rescue. They then combined that with CRE recombinase, which is a tyrosine recombinase enzyme that's uh, taken from a P1 bacteriophage. And then I think they had a third item that was tacked onto that. And what it does is it attaches to, to DNA, creates, um, creates a protein that is then... Um, processed by uh, ribosomes, and then seems to be what is necessary for health of the, of the uh, microglia. And that health of the microglia, which originates now from bone marrow, mm -hmm. um, leads to cessation. Right? Yeah. It, it's, it stopped. Mm -hmm. um, not, just, not just substantially, but like... Yeah, it was like six of the eight mice that had the... Um, bone marrow transplant. The bone marrow transplant with the Hox B8 um, present, they had, I think, complete cessation of their maladaptive grooming behavior. Um, and I think the two that didn't have 100% sensation, they had a reduction in the amount of time they spent oh. doing maladaptive grooming. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and I think that was the other part of the site that was interesting was then they they um, wanted to look and see what would happen if they kind of reversed that instead of rescuing. They gave a um, they irradiated the bone marrow from a healthy control and then injected uh, or gave a bone marrow transplant to that healthy control with the Hawksby eight knockout. Um, and they found that those mice weren't actually able to um, adequately recreate um, the bone marrow and that cell line, and they actually all deceased. So they, and before they deceased, they noticed the maladaptive grooming in um, those mice as well. So I think that was another interesting part of the study too. Yeah, I think what I took from that is that at the moment, the best evidence suggests that HOXB8 is involved in some sort of microglial um, maintenance that is necessary for um, unmisregulated innate grooming. Yes. <laughs> I want to throw out uh, one more uh, study that, interestingly enough, it, there's another thread of bone marrow transplantation being the treatment. So there was uh, a leukodystrophy that was identified by a group, let's see, um, Friedberg, Friedberg in 2022, they published a case uh, story, a case uh, report on this. There's a patient who probably had a pathogenic uh, leukoencephalopathy that was related to CSF1R variant. So it's called CSF1R variant leukoencephalopathy. And uh, don't look at my spelling there, anybody, because I've clearly misspelled leukoencephalopathy. Um, but the idea was that there's a deficiency in the tyrosine kinase domain of the CSF1 receptor, which is appears to be important in maintaining healthy microglia in the CNS. The case report started with a woman at age 49 whose behaviors began with picking and scratching and then escalated over time. And there's also an interesting component to this, and that is that uh, imactumet E-M-A-C-T-U-M-U-Z-A-B. Anybody know how to say that? Emastuzumab or something like that. which is a CSF1 receptor monoclonal antibody for cancer causes pruritus. So there's this interesting, at least itching, there's an interesting picking and scratching, and these two things have been associated. And I just want to make sure I said that right. There's a deficiency in the tyrosine, tyrosine kinase domain of the CSF1 receptor. And, and that's important for microglia. So we now have a couple of different threads that lead us to microglial dysfunction associated with picking and scratching. We have a medication that is associated with uh, CSF1 receptor that is associated with uh, picking and scratching. It's an antagonist at that receptor. And then I think we have another story, and I'm not sure if this takes us to, uh, to microglia or not, but it takes us to neuronal functioning again in the CNS. And I think this is the SAPAP3 story. And uh, Elliot, I think you're the, the storyteller here. Yeah. Um, so this was another study. It was using mice as the model. Um, and in this study, what they did is they knocked out SAPAP3, which is a postsynaptic protein that binds, um, I think it's PSD59, which is a protein, it's a scaffolding protein that regulates the AMPA and the NMDA glutamate receptors. And they noticed in mice when they knocked this um, 
SAPAP3 protein out that they developed um, maladaptive grooming. And then they also seem to have some anxiety as well. Um, the reason that this study was a little bit, it's different than the Hawks B8, but also um, kind of contributes to us thinking that the onset of maladaptive grooming and like excori or ED is um, multifactorial because we have Hawks B8 when we knock that out, that's peripheral. Um, we think that's a peripheral component um, to people developing um, excoriation disorder. And then SAPAP3, um, it's expressed in the CNS, um, and the SAPAP3 is actually um, only, it's expressed throughout the brain, but then it's expressed locally in the striatum, and it's the only SAPAP3 um, scaffolding gene that, or protein that is expressed in that area of the brain. So when they knocked this out, the mice developed a maladaptive grooming. And then what they found is when they did a um, recovery or a rescue, um, they used lentivirus and then they tagged that with GFP. And when they injected um, the SAPAP3 to rescue these mice, that the maladaptive grooming behavior um, it completely resolved as well. And so that led them to think that there is a glutamate um, receptor deficiency or that glutamate misregulation is somehow um, a component in maladaptive grooming behavior. And we're going to come back to that maybe in just a few minutes, right? Mm -hmm. All right, so we've talked about the diagnosis, right? There seems to be something that uh, in ED, the, the person who is having difficulty with this condition is going to pick or scratch to the point that they create skin lesions that disrupts their day. It doesn't necessarily have to involve um, OCD-like thinking where there's something associated with scratching that leads to um, resolution of a problem. It may be more like trichotillomania, which seems like an impulse control disorder more than it does an, um, an OCD behavior, maybe. Um, it appears that it's, it, it clearly does needs to exclude something like body dysmorphic disorder where the picking is to change the, um, the apparent defect in the body. It seems to be related to um, microglial dysfunction or glutamate signaling in the brain. And now that we have all of those things kind of down, it happens maybe more in women than men, it's a fairly low frequency condition, one to two percent, which is still online with many of the other psychiatric conditions. So now that we've got all of that down, have I done a reasonable review of everything up to this point? I think so. Yes. So now that we've got to that part, let's talk about, um, I, I want to skip. We, we do have management here, but I want to skip to something that's sort of a fascinating story. I want to skip to one other kind of overlap between uh, pathology and uh, management. So we have a phenotype that includes picking and scratching called Prater-Willi syndrome. And I think, Jonathan, you did the dive on this one. Do you want to tell us about this one? And then maybe uh, Cree du Chat? Yep. They're the, these are some ones I was not familiar with before, but they are uh, pretty rare uh, developmental disabilities. Uh, Prater-Willi prevalence is 1 in 10,000 to 30,000. Um, 
uh, it's a genomic imprinting disorder. So you lose the. Um, let me let me look back here. So you're lacking the expression of genes inherited from the paternal chromosome uh, 15, uh, the arm 13 through 11 region, um, from the parental 15. Q11 to 13 region um, from the mother, um, and they control the expression of imprinting genes in the chromosome Q15, Q11 through Q13 region. Um, one of the key findings of Prader-Willi uh, are infantile hypotonia, a poor suck, failure to thrive. This is just complicated stuff, so and uh, hypogonadism and hypogenitalism. Uh, um, other characteristic features are short stature, small feet, and hands due to growth and other hormone deficiencies. Um, so just a vast um, presentation of, of um, the phenotypes here. Hormone deficiencies, hyperphagia, market, market obesity, um, so one of the psychiatric associated comorbidity, comorbidities in Prader-Willi are uh, uh, tamper tantrums, compulsions, and compulsive skin picking. Um, and I didn't know the reason behind this, but they had a very high pain threshold. Um, so, and so that was due to them, you know, constantly skin picking. Due I to that. And I didn't know that. Apparently, at the end, like this is going to be important. I think for you, mm -hmm. I was just doing the math in my head. There's somewhere between 300 and 1,000 patients in the state of Utah who would potentially have this condition. Then, and if you have uh, are providing surgery for one of those patients, it looks like they will pick at incision sites, even if it's incredibly painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought the other part of that that was interesting was. They said that, um, like acute abdominal pathology, they might not present or have symptoms from it as far as like pain. So like if they have um, like a gastric volvulus or an acute appy, they might not have those normal, you know, visceral pain fibers kind of going off and letting them know that, you know, there is something aloof inside of them. And... You know, the other part was that I think it said that they don't, not all these patients will actually vomit um, or have the capacity to vomit. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I thought that was kind of fascinating as far as the pain front goes and then tying that, their inability to perceive pain with picking. That is fascinating. Now, one of the, the part I read in the uh, AJP article, which I've referred to quite a few times, I know, uh, commented on the treatment in this setting. And I thought it was fascinating because it, it does talk about um, protective clothing. We've used that at times here at the state hospital when voices are driving uh, self-harming behaviors. Uh, response interruption, redirection, uh, they use punishment and extinction. I think we generally try our very, very hardest to avoid any sort of anything that even looks like punishment. Um, but I thought the thing that was really interesting to me that I really liked was something that we focused on a lot here over the last couple of years with regards to um, what's called the CTRS model, the recovery-oriented cognitive therapy. And that is uh, <clears throat> help somebody find something they're passionate about that they enjoy so that the behavior, rather than stop that behavior, right, it's, hey, 
here's something you really enjoy. Let's get you focused on something that you you love as well. And so uh, a replacement behavior, I, I thought that was actually priceless. And I think that's meaningful in more than Prater Willie. Kredushah. Kredushah. French pr- for cat cry. Cat cry. Good pronunciation there, Dr. Randy. I don't know French. <laughs> <laughs> this one's also very rare. One in 20,000 to 50,000 births. Um, genetic disorder, also intellectual, due to a deletion of the short arm of chromosome 5. Also presentation you'll see in Crudushaw are low birth weight, hypotonia, microcephaly, uh, wide set eyes, also known as hypertellerism, low set ears, a small jaw, a rounded face, and, uh, and it said some kind of heart defect. I wasn't familiar with what kind, but um, a study that came out um, from some Spanish and Italian patients showed that about 87% of patients uh, with CDC exhibited some form of um, excoriation disorder. Um, and they were also found in kind of the same, same locations in the hands, fingers, and face. I think, I think it's interesting that I, I don't know the cause of this. We know that it's associated with a chromosome, right? I think you mentioned right. one of those. I, I can't help but wonder, are Hox genes located on chromosome 5? I'm, I'm now curious. Right, because we have this story, and, and, and clearly there are some things that look like they could be related to developmental um, pathways not going out the way they normally would. Chromosome 17. For Hox genes? Yep. Interesting. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So where's the tie-in? Is it there? Who knows? Uh, let's now go back to non-pharmacological therapy for ED. And one of my favorite therapies is at the top of the list. Yeah, there are a lot of different therapies associated with this. Uh, All right, I'm, I'm going to. I'm just going to like jump in here. You got to talk towards Thank the mic. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm getting too too relaxed here. Turn to the mic. There you go. Um, some of the non-pharmacologic. Th- I, I I think he's afraid of the mic. I know. I think <laughs> I think so. <laughs> what? So talking to going back to the. Um, CBT, so this is what we talk about a lot, right? We learned over the over this rotation are um, the check, catch it, check it, change it, mm-hmm. um, psychoeducation for patients. Um, it was kind of hard kind of zooming out, going through all the, the non-pharmacological therapies that they labeled that as either a significant reduction or decrease in the Y-box score. So there's no kind of way between all these other studies how they standardize their results or outcomes of the studies. But two of the studies that did uh, implement CBT showed significant reductions in symptom severity. Um, HRT, uh, I want to say hormone replacement therapy, but that's habit reversal therapy uh, with decoupling. so the idea behind HRT is being aware of the habit um, and then substituting that with another um, incompatible, incompatible action like fist clenching. I like uh, that. In a sense, it's, it's somewhat like playing with toys. You can't pick if your hands are on the toys. Right. I like that a lot. Third one is decoupling. This looks fascinating. Yeah, and I think we talked with one of the patients on our unit who is learning or 
uh, implementing some form of uncoupling, uh, decoupling. Basically what it is is unlearning picking and replacing the skin picking by a harmless behavior um, that mimics the central movements of the problematic behavior. So for example, if your hand's gonna go up and you're going to bite something or scratch something, instead you're going to pass it on your ear or something that's healthy that you're not <laughs> gonna pick your hair again. Groom your hair so that it uh, lays down rather than bite a fingernail, I think exactly. is where you're headed. Maybe. Yep. Yep. Or, or maybe uh, rub your earlobe, whatever. Yeah, but, you know. something that's, that's harmless. Acceptance and commitment therapy. These guys are everywhere. We we did go to uh, a an ACT acceptance and commitment therapy seminar with uh, the guy who developed it. I forget his name at the moment. It was right when COVID was starting. We were sitting in a room with about a thousand people, and I just kept looking around, thinking, "So, which person is going to give us all COVID at this super spreader event?" And I'm not sure we learned this very well. Um, but go ahead and go through this uh, one through four. This one was a new one for me too. Um, acceptance and commitment therapy is the idea of being able to accept and implement mindfulness. Um, so being aware um, and so those four, those four ideas behind ACT are one, acceptance of the negative thoughts and feelings as part of the human experience. Um, to find ways to respond to those negative thoughts and emotions in a way that is congruent with the personal values and goals and to not respond to that habit of skin picking. And three, near complete cessation um, were found in those four participants. All but, four. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I know, right? Four participants. It doesn't get better with the pharmacology trials. I know I that. Know, I know. Um, and they were not fully maintained, which was unfortunate. A three participants in four weeks follow-up. But um, they did say the combination of ACT and HRT did significantly reduce skin picking in all five participants. And it didn't matter if you started with ACT or RT, HRT. It kind of seems like HRT might be what works. But I, I, yeah. like I said, I have this unhealthy bias against ACT despite data that it's helpful in many settings. I, I just struggle with it. Uh, I'm going to summarize. Let's, let's jump to pharmacological treatments. I'm going to summarize the data, like some of the data very quickly. Mm -hmm. There are amazing results in non-randomized, uncontrolled, observed trials. <laughs> <laughs> Bias doesn't play a role in that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's pretty hard to find that same benefit in randomized controlled trials with a uh, with a blinded, like a placebo-controlled, right. right? There's maybe a little bit of data for fluoxetine that wasn't terribly compelling, um, mm -hmm. but most of the medications, most of the SSRIs, and at least lamotrigine uh, did a lot better in unblinded studies than they did in blinded studies. So I think, I think it's fair in the interest of time to simply say, as far as lamotrigine and SSRIs go, maybe... And maybe fluoxetine, maybe. That's hard to say. Yeah, but let's let's take a look at something like uh, NAC. Talk to me about that. NAC. So we talked about that a little bit um, in one of the studies that Elliot mentioned. But um, and one of the patients on our unit has been doing NAC, I believe, for about two weeks now, hasn't she? Yeah, um, without any clear benefit, as yeah. far as we can tell. Is that right? For, uh, yeah, for, and, and this would be, um, we'll, we'll just, because it's, 
patient health information, we've kept it ambiguous enough at this point not to um, cause problems, but if we go further, we'll, we might. So we'll stop here with that. Um, but the randomized control data mm-hmm. says there maybe, was maybe it helps. Yeah, so over 12 weeks, and I think they dosed it starting at 1,200 milligrams per day, and over three weeks, um, and then they changed dose again at three weeks, and then at six weeks they reached the 3,000 milligrams. Um, reduced symptoms 47% compared to placebo. Um, so that that was a huge... So I'm looking at NNTs, and it looks like um, out of every four patients that you give uh, this medication to, um, one of those will have a significant reduction in symptoms without benefit to psychosocial functioning at 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. That's about where SSRIs sit. That's actually not the worst outcome for most medications that we have. Um, but when you put it in terms of NNT, it doesn't seem really great, does it? No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> um, I think one of the interesting things with you know this study was um you know it was again it was a small sample size i think it was 60 total patients and they had uh or a little over 60 so they had 35 um people in the um treatment group and then they had 31 in the placebo group but the interesting thing to me um and i wonder how it impacts the data with such a small study is that of the people that were in the placebo group, only 21 of the 31 actually followed up at the end of the 12 weeks. And so I would just be interested to know why maybe that was. A lot more dropout in the, uh, in the placebo arm then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it looks like there's some signal here. It's interesting. There was The, the first I heard of NAC, and I, I don't know if this was one of the impetuses. Impeti? For impetuses? Impetus. Imp- plural, one of the driving factors for later studies, but there was a study on bipolar disorder looking to see if N-acetylcysteine would help treat bipolar disorder. And a whole lot of people came in and said, gosh, look, it I don't, doesn't look like it's helping bipolar disorder, but gee, I sure stopped biting my fingernails, yeah. which, which right, we, we think that there might be something, some overlap based on our mouse models with these two conditions. So I thought mm-hmm. that was interesting. Uh, Next medication, Riluzol, 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 Riluzol. Who knows? Yeah, that was. I mean, that one was. um, That's a medication that's used. um, I think it's FDA approved to treat ALS. Um, And this was just like a single case report that they had used this um, in a patient with um, skin picking, and they had noticed a improvement in that single patient. So again, it was a case report, and the whole purpose, I think, of this was to just kind of drive um, maybe future research and say, like, hey, this worked um, in our one patient. Is this another drug we can look at? So this was a patient who had ALS, who was being treated for ALS, who also had concomitant skin picking? Or no, they randomly it was just it was just a patient that had skin picking, I believe. I think yeah. that was something you'd looked at, but um, patient. Why did they choose this medication? I, I can't imagine that it's inexpensive. Oh, it's expensive. I think you know it was one of those. They were thinking because the research has shown, or some of the research has shown, that glutamate might be a um, potential cause of skin picking and so this is a glutamate modulator 
And so by giving this instead of maybe an acetylcysteine or something like that, which is Pennies. much cheaper and doesn't Pennies. have the side effect profile. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, Trexone. Now, I, I think there is more data than this for skin picking, self-harming than we found. Mm -hmm. But I think the only thing we have here is related to the SAPA P3 knockout. And I think that's what you have. Um, I actually hadn't looked at this study. This is Jonathan. I've looked oh. at the SAP A3 stuff, but he had looked specifically at the um, naltrexone with it being an opioid antagonist. Yeah, this was found under that same uh, RCT for treatments. And they said it was a possible animal model found in dogs um, that had chronic acrylic dermatitis. So, and then I was thinking maybe that is associated with uh, with pathological grooming, but yeah, I think I, I think we probably dropped the ball on naltrexone. I think that's used quite often uh, in DSPD settings. Uh, so, um, what's the new name for uh, like uh, the disability related IQ? Um, so somebody who has an IQ under 70 and it's not, previously it was under 70. Boy, I'm feeling really embarrassed right now. This is two on this podcast <laughs> at least. All right, um, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, but I, I think it's used quite often in those kind of settings. Inositol, who had that one? Inositol, yeah, that was another one I found. Again, not a lot of studies behind this one. Um, one uncontrolled study of three individuals. Um, very <laughs> a, convincing. I'm not sure that's a case study or the case. That might not be a trial. That might be a, a case series. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they thought maybe 5-HT transporter activity. Huh? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, augmentation studies. Uh, it looks like you have a couple of these looking at um, the use of adding an antipsychotic medication to. Either uh, looks like largely an SSRI or an SNRI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and they did they did find that, uh, for example, a combination of uh, Abilify and Venlafaxine ended picking in one case of treatment resistant ED. So um, there were other two cases with fluoxetine on lanzapine um, or paliperidone that decreased picking as well. Um, and there was one, oh, there, there are other case studies that also supported augmenting SSRIs with typical antipsychotics like Halidol. Um, lastly, um, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. I know this is, this is very new, so this isn't something that is, it's a preliminary study, but they found that um, patients that participate in TMS, 62.5% of them um, had significant differences. Um, and those 33.3% that were in the sham, I did not mm -hmm. know what sham meant. Sham means that they put them under the bonnet but didn't run Like magnets. little to nothing, yeah. Yeah, no, no magnet activity. Um, I think this is interesting because 60% to 30% seems like that's a signal, and I think what they're saying, saying is that this, the study wasn't powered enough to see an outcome. Right. And it's interesting that there does seem to be a fair amount of placebo response in all of these treatments. I don't know if anybody else is noticing yeah. that as well. Yeah. And, and with all due respect, the study with 60 people, 65 people is perhaps our best powered study, right? It's the study with the most people in it. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think... 
just very quickly, management issues, there can be complications associated with damage to skin. Do you want to talk about those, Jonathan? Yeah, there are uh, complications with skin picking. Um, the first ones that, that came to my mind are, are tissue damage and infection. And what I've seen, um, just from experience from, and this, this isn't necessarily what we've seen in trials, but experience from other dermatologists have suggested if there is associated pruritus to include an IL um, or intralesional injection like Kenalog. Um, to assist with pruritus and semi-occlusive dressings to prevent further infection and promote healing. I found interesting UVB phototherapy to reduce pruritus, um, which I wasn't, and that was in one study with treatment-resistant pruritus. Yeah, that seems a little bit different maybe than, than the excoriation syndrome. Yeah. not driven by, by that. Right. Yeah. Use a laser if they're scarring. Mm-hmm. Laser resurfacing. Um, and then, you know, most importantly, this is going to be impairing someone's life, right? So they're going to be stuck at home, um, not going to be wanting to leave the school or work. It's, it's impairing their life. So it feels like we've tackled it. I think so. We tried. I think we (laughs) took a narrow, we took a narrow topic and Still expounded to on hour. it as long as we could. Yeah. Is it, isn't it interesting? It doesn't matter what topic we get. It's always an hour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, take home. Elliot, let's start with you on take home. Um, yeah, I think the take home for me um, was just kind of the field of um, like medical genomics and looking at um, and having the capacity now to look effectively at different genes um, and see, you know, how that is, um, or how those certain genes are responsible for causing, um, you know, psychiatric illness. And I think, you know, with the technologies that we have available with AI, um, and then with gene sequencing, um, becoming more economic that, you know, the future of kind of tailored, you know, individually tailored medicine, especially in psychiatry, I think that that, um, you know, it's something that's exciting, and I think this was one of the real things I took away from looking at this topic. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm going to piggyback on that just a little bit. Medical genomics is very fascinating to me, and it feels like um, it, it feels like we we can use it in some areas well. Right? I think uh, mo- many of the cancer treatments right now have some sort of genomic assessment of the cancerous cells, and that drives some of the therapies. Mm-hmm. But I'm not very familiar if there are other locations where we've been able to put genomics into the medicine as well. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels like, uh, I know that there are some, um, I think there's a, geno- a genome or a genetics clinic, and I think the home of the genetics clinics so far are develop- developmental pediatrics settings. Right, so areas where um, genetics shows up, and mm-hmm. I, I'm still not. I, I think you then have some sort of psychosocial wraparound treatments that you develop for those syndromes that are identified early on. But as far as as finding psychiatric illnesses with specific genomic presentations or genetic presentations, I should probably say, I, I think we're still 
lagging a little bit. We have some data with things like the CYP450 enzyme activity that gives us some guidance mm -hmm. uh, on how we might choose dosing. But it feels like it, it, it feels like reading this, I mean, just the article on the one case scenario that they thought was a pathological, or a, I'm sorry, a pathogenic leukodystrophy that looks a whole lot like a frontotemporal temporal dementia, all of a sudden my mind's spinning. We, we have mm -hmm. um, had a number of patients here at the state hospital where frontotemporal dementias have on some level mimicked schizophrenia. And so it, it seems that a case report of a pathological leukodystrophy, um, pathogenic leukodystrophy, I'm sorry, uh, that has a presentation that starts off as skin picking and scratching, all of a sudden my mind's spinning, right? Mm -hmm. um, are there, uh, we have patients periodically who have head banging kinds of things as head banging, pathological grooming or, or misregulation of innate grooming. It doesn't seem like it, but maybe, I, I don't mm -hmm. know. These things start to run around in my head. And I, and I think that's a great take home of, of what can I do? How does understanding genomic medicine help me maybe with patients like Peter Willie to watch that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, all those kinds of things and how they come into play. I think that's a great take home. Jonathan, your take home. Well, as future pr practitioners, we're going to have to use evidence based medicine. I think that was the big take home for me. Is uh, <laughs> it's it's really easy for us to extrapolate, right, based off of what we study and what what we understand. We can't jump and make conclusions, right? We have to stay with what the data says. What is the evidence, um, and how can we do that to help our patients? Um, I think that's where I got tied up with this in the beginning, was making extrapolation from an inflammatory process to something that is... Psychiatric? Yeah, psychiatric or glutamatergic, you know... Uh, uh, we may find that at some point. process. But you weren't able to. Right. You wanted that to still be accurate even though you couldn't find the link yet. Exactly. Could be, might not be, we definitely don't know, but we definitely don't have any evidence. good evidence for that right now, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would say that one of the primary goals I have of this uh, exercise is that the students who end up going through with a podcast, my feeling is that on the other end of this process, they are better... Um, providers, practitioners, because they have a better sense of how to think about uh, evidence-based medicine. And not simply the pathophysiology tells us here's the answer, but here's the story we have, and here's where the dead ends have led to, or where the process has led to dead ends in treatment, and positive outcomes in treatment, right? I think we, um, we, we're all better because we read the data and, and so if you had that experience, then my objective was met. Yeah. Because this isn't something that, uh, uh, for those of you that um, maybe don't have the same syllabus that Jonathan does, Jonathan sent me a list of things that he needs to be able to understand and be aware of and have some, um, some kind of shelf-like ability to treat or interact with patients with that condition when, when he moves into his specialty. And nowhere in that is there anything about excoriation disorder, is there? Nope. <laughs> and I would posit that even though we've gone over many of those conditions, either by identifying the criteria in our morning meetings or talking about medications that are used for those various conditions, 
none of that will be as valuable to you as this podcast. So my, my goal is that this, this process makes people better physicians. I'm really excited. I hope I get to see this. <laughs> I hope you listen to the podcast too, and I hope that you see the outcomes of this in your practice as you move forward. Anything else you would say or add? Uh, no, just the fact that I, I really hope from this experience that, you know, if I do um, come across a patient, you know, in the future that I, that I am able to glean from this information. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think you will. Thank you. All right, guys. Uh, excellent job. As always, uh, thoroughly enjoy these these events. I I love the rabbit holes that they take me down more than anything. I think they uh, they're just the best for me. And, and I want to thank you guys for having another great experience with me. On that note, team out. Team out. <laughs>